0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're glad you're here. If you sit down and really think about it, There's a lot about the church that is not biblical. It seems like the more I study the Bible, the more I question how did the church ever get to be in the place it's in right now. You know, the church often does things for no reason other than because, well, we've always done them. It's kind of a tradition. And I think more of what the church does today is tradition rather than Bible. Tradition being just the transmission of customs or beliefs from one generation to the next. Do you realize that many of the practices and traditions and beliefs of the Christians that, we, that take place in the church today, they're not even found in the Bible. It's just something that we picked up, we started doing. And the problem is that traditions are a hard thing to break. And if you break them, it often ruffles feathers for those who hold to those traditions. And when you're talking about tradition, I don't think anything has a stronger hold on the Christian church than the tradition of Christmas. And no matter what people learn about it, they just they love the tradition, they're going to hang on to it. I I think that most Christians don't realize that our Christmas celebration is really nothing but tradition. And what troubles me is that so many who call themselves Christians believe that our Christmas celebration is somehow about Christ. We're often told to keep Christ in Christmas. You ever heard that? And I'm like, how? Why? What about Christmas has to do with Christ? So for our study this morning, I thought it'd be fun to look at the fallacies of Christmas. (laughs) The word fallacy means a deceptive, misleading, or false notion or belief. Now, since we here believe the truth matters, I think it's important to understand the truth about Christmas. Truth matters. We are each to study the Bible to find out what the truth is, and we're to hold to the truth no matter what it is and no matter who it offends. So let me ask you this morning, let's think through this. What is the you think is the number one fallacy of Christmas? By number one, I mean, you know, we, these don't really need to be ranked, but what's one of the biggest fallacies you think about Christmas? Okay, boy, you're, you're throwing all kinds of things out there, all right? And I'm, I'm hearing a lot of good stuff here. Here's to me what I think is the biggest fallacy. Christmas is a Christian holiday, right? You think that's true? You think most people think that? a christian holiday there's something spiritual about december 25th i mean just look around churches hold pageants i mean christmas play they all they're doing all kinds of stuff for december 25th for christmas now last week i was watching tucker carlson one of the few people i can stand on fox and uh tucker had this to say a christmas tree is a symbol It's a symbol of a specific culture. It's a symbol of a much-loved tradition that is hundreds of years old. Above all, it's a symbol of a religion, the world's largest. Torching Christmas trees is an attack on Christianity. Now, the segment he was doing, he was talking about the, the Christmas tree outside of Fox News got burned down. A homeless guy burned it down. Uh, he was talking about some people ran over a Christmas tree. They're, doing, they're destroying Christmas tree. So Tucker comes out and says, this is an attack on Christianity. And I thought, well, that's something I never knew before. You know? I mean, so I had to scour the Bible. Where does the Bible talk about the Christmas tree being the symbol of Christianity? Since When? Where do we find that? Who comes up with this kind of stuff? Well, let me ask you this. What does the Christmas tree symbolize to you? Symbolize Christmas, doesn't it? You see a Christmas tree, you think of Christmas. Well, the Christmas tree is a symbol of Christmas, so this makes it a symbol of Christianity because people think Christmas is Christian. So you've got to tie the loose ends up and put it all together there, Right? Let me ask you this, I think Tucker is out to lunch on this whole thing of a Christmas tree being a symbol of Christianity, but what is a symbol of Christianity? Do we have symbols? Okay, I figured that would be what people said, the cross. The cross is viewed as a symbol, right? But here's the thing we need to understand about the cross. The original symbol of the early Christians was not the cross. It was the monogram of Christ. It was the key row. The key row is the X and the P. This is the oldest symbol of Christianity. It's a monogram or Christogram, and it's formed by combining the first two letters of the Greek word Christus, which means Christ. So the key row symbol was employed by early Christians to symbolize both Yeshua and Christianity. They used this. This was their symbol. This was what marked this is who we are with this symbol. Now, let's digress here for a minute. Where did the whole Christmas tree custom come from? It really wasn't an early symbol of Christianity, okay? Well, evergreen, there's a lot of different discrepancies when you study this, you try to find out history. Everybody's got their view of history, all right? But evergreen trees and plants have been used to celebrate winter festivals for thousands of years. Okay, long before the advent of Christianity, pagans in Europe used branches of evergreen firs to decorate their homes and brighten their spirits during the winter solstice. You know, it's cold, snowy out there, you bring some green stuff in your house, hey, it makes you feel a little bit better, right? Early Romans used evergreens to decorate their temples at the festival of Saturnalia. While ancient Egyptians used green palm rushes as part of their worship of the god Ra. You know, who Ra is the Egyptian sun god. All right. Now, Dr. Dominique Wilson from the University of Sydney writes this. He says, The idea of bringing the evergreen into the house represents fertility and new life in the darkness of winter, which was much more of pagan themes. Okay. He goes on to say, that's also where the idea of the holly and the ivy and the mistletoe come from because they're the few flowering plants at winter, so therefore they hold special significance. So the idea of bringing evergreens into the house started and eventually and evolved into the Christmas tree. Now, in places like the early United States, having a Christmas tree was often viewed as a foreign pagan custom until the mid-19th century. The Puritans fought against Christmas. I mean, they outlawed making dishes, you know, that were associated or not working on Christmas. I mean, they were really against it, okay, big time. Now, while most people believe that the Christmas tree originated in Germany, and it might have, it was really Britain's Queen Victoria and Prince Albert who popularized it in the 1840s and 50s. A drawing of the royal family celebrating around a decorated Christmas tree in Windsor Castle was published by the published by the Illustrated London News in 1848. Victoria and Albert were popular royals and as soon as every as soon as the Brits saw this, everybody wanted a tree in their house. Okay, they're following the royals just like, you know, the Americans follow Hollywood. They do it, everybody wants to do it. The same imagery was published two years later in the United States in Goody's ladies' book, though Victoria's tiara and Albert's mustache were removed to make the image more American. This was the first widely circulated picture of a decorated evergreen Christmas tree in the United States, and very soon, every home had one. So we're just you know, following the, the big shots, you know, the, the people in Hollywood or the, you know, the royals, and we got to do like they do. So that's kind of how it got to be so popular. All right, let's go back to the subject of Christian symbolism. Because of the persecution of Christianity, the followers of Yeshua used a stylized fish. As a secret sign to identify themselves as Christians. So these are signs that you would find in the catacombs. You would find them on jewelry. You'd find them. You know, they didn't find any Christmas trees in the catacombs, okay? They just didn't find it. It was in the fifth century that the cross. Became started to become a symbol of Christianity in the first century we've talked about this before. The cross was an obscenity. they wouldn't mention the word cross they didn't talk about the it was a it was an item of torture and murder and so it wasn't until the fifth century it got picked up as a Christian symbol, but the Christmas tree never really was okay. Like I said, they, they didn't, for some reason, didn't find this on any of the catacombs, any of the jewelry or lamps or vases. They just It didn't show up. So let's kind of remove that as a symbol of Christianity, okay? I know I don't want to go against Tucker. You know, he's got the largest cable news network out there, but I guess what? He's wrong. It's not a symbol of Christianity. I don't think Tucker has an idea of what a Christian really is. But if you think Tucker's out the left field on this, like I do, about the tree being a symbol of Christianity... Wait till you hear this from the clergy, no less. One of the most extreme examples of trying to make the traditions of Christmas Christian, because I think that's what we do. We take Christmas and we say, let's make it Christian. Let's make everything about it Christian so we can feel good about doing it. The issue of the Episcopal News, the Diocese of Los Angeles, written by Reverend Benison, the rector of St. Mark's Church in Upland, California, has this to say. There are few causes to which I am more passionately committed than that of Santa Claus. Santa Claus deserves not just any place in the church, but the highest place of honor, where he should be enthroned as the long-bearded, ancient of days, the divine and holy one who we call God. Santa Claus is God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, and whose hand is a pack, Bursting at its seams with gifts of His creation. Santa Claus is God the Holy Spirit, who comes with the sound of a gentle laughter, with the shape like a bowl full of jelly, to sow in the night the seeds of good humor. Santa Claus indeed deserves the exalted and enthroned place in the church, for He is God the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit." So there he is, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. I've seen him in the toy store. I've seen him in the car, his car on the freeway. And when I saw him with his crazy beard and his baggy red suit, I saw more than the seasonal merchant of cheap plastic toys. I saw no less than the triune God. Wow. This guy still Yeah, this this is a guy who Claims to be clergy. This is a this is a man who's in the service of the Lord. Santa Claus is now they've made him the incarnation. You talk about confusion. Okay, now we we look at stuff like that and we're like, this guy's out to lunch. He's a blatant idiot. We know that, but how many people say, oh yeah, that that makes sense? You know, yeah, that that does make sense. How far will people go to make the trappings of Christmas spiritual? So far that you believe that Santa Claus is the incarnate, You better watch out. You better not pout. Because he, he knows if you've been bad or good, right? Because he's God. Hey, it all fits, doesn't it? Now he, it all finally comes together. And then, and then what do you do with you know, the kids who you tell there's a Santa Claus, and they get old enough to realize there's not, and they're like, oh. you told me there's a God too. Is there really one of them, or maybe not that too? You know, somehow we lie to our kids and we think it'll benefit them. This is one sick Catholic priest, okay? So, I think one of the biggest fallacies is Christian or Christmas is a Christian holiday. So how much of Christmas has to do with Christianity? None of it. Okay, none of it's biblical. None of it's commanded by the Lord. None of it was apostolic. None of it was ever observed by the early church. Yet to many Christians, it's a Christian holiday. Well, people say, well, isn't the name, something spiritual about the name? Well, the word Christmas comes from the Mass of Christ, or as it came to be shortened, Christ Mass. It's a Roman Catholic Mass, which grew out of a specific feast day established in 1038 A.D. It has nothing to do with Scripture or the birth of Christ. The Encyclopedia Britannica, 1946 edition, of course, you've got to go back of when people had things straight, says this. Christmas was not among the earliest festivals of the church. It was not instituted by Christ or the apostles or by biblical authority. It was picked up afterward from paganism. Now today, many Christians really work hard to try to keep Christ in Christmas. But why? Have you heard the Christian song, there's, he's the reason for the season. He's the purpose of it all. And I say, okay, let's think about that. He's the purpose for all what? What? Is He the purpose of the gifts, the lights, the trees, Santa, cookies, parties, materialism? What does any of that have to do with Christ? But we're working hard to keep Him in the season, to make it spiritual somehow. Let me say this. Please get this, okay? I am not saying it is wrong for Christians to celebrate Christmas. Okay? I'm not saying that at all. Listen. Listen. I enjoy the holiday. I enjoy all that goes along with it. I enjoy the music. I enjoy just so many things, the lights, the festivities. I mean, it seems to get sooner and sooner now, you know, every year. I mean, we didn't even get to Halloween yet, and they're pushing Christmas already, you know, but I enjoy it. But here's the thing. Let's enjoy it for what it is. It's a holiday of no religious significance, like the 4th of July or Valentine's Day, okay? We don't have to keep Christ in Christmas because Christmas has nothing to do with Christ. It doesn't mean we can't do it or can't enjoy it. We can. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it. Now, I know Christians who say, "Well, oh, you can't bring a tree in your house. Jeremiah 10 talks about the tree, you know, cutting the tree down, bringing it in your house and decorating it. Oh, people. <laughs> Jeremiah's talking about an idol. Okay, that is cut down and decorated to worship. Now, if you're worshiping your Christmas tree, we do have a problem. But I don't think too many, I don't know too many Christians that actually worship the Christmas tree. Okay, they just kind of bring it in, decorate it and set it in a the house. There's nothing wrong with the Christmas tree. There's nothing wrong with presents or Christmas music or Christmas cookies or anything. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, not, it's not Christian. It's not, you know, from the Bible. It's not about Christ. It's just not connected. So just enjoy it for what it is. And don't try to make it spiritual and confuse people with all that goes on there. Because if it is about the birth of Christ, I'm like, boy, we're missing something, okay? All right, fallacy number two. Christmas is a celebration of Christ's birth. That's how it's spiritual, right? Because it's Christ's birthday, and we're celebrating His birthday. Let me tell you something. If you celebrate my birthday the way you celebrate Christ's birthday, I don't want nothing to do with you. (laughs) It's my birthday. I'd like some presents. Instead of giving it to everybody else and doing all this other stuff that doesn't, you know, has anything to do with me, what does it have to do with Christ? People think Christ was born on December 25th. And if you ask the average Christian what Christmas was, they would no doubt associate Christmas with the birth of Christ and some way see it as a celebration of his birth. Biblically, there's nothing that ties Christ's birth to December 25th. I've read articles by people who say they're scholars, and they're trying to somehow tie December 25th into Christ's birth. You just can't do that, all right? The Scriptures tell us when Christ was born. Look at Luke 2, 8-11, that was read this morning. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Did you see the date of Christ's birth in there? (laughs) Huh? You see it? (laughs) It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right, the Scriptures tell us the shepherds were out in the field. Now, I know, we read that and we're like, oh, so what? Okay, and again, We have to know a little bit about culture. We have to know a little bit about history for this even to make sense. The Greek word here for fields is agroleo. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. Fields in this time, in this place, were small plots of land. They're not like our fields. They're acres and acres. They were fields. A lot of them were the size of this room. That was it. Okay? And you're growing food for your family. You're trying to take care of family. So you got your field out there. Small plots. These small plots of land were right next to the desert. And the shepherds were in the desert with their flocks. If the shepherds came into the field, you had a problem. Because what are their flocks eating then? They're eating your food. Okay, so you can not they can't have that. All right? So what would happen is after harvest, after the fields were harvested, the shepherds would move into the field then, and their animals would clean up whatever was left. Take the nubble down to dirt. All right. So if the shepherds were in the fields at the time of Yeshua's birth, it had to be sometime after the harvest, but before planting. Harvest ends about July 1st, and spring planting begins the moment the first rains happen, usually around November 1st. So, we know for a fact, Yeshua's birthday could not have been between November 1st and July 1st, which rules out December 25th. But, we can narrow it down a lot more than that, okay? This is just one proof that, listen, it didn't happen on December 25th, but Revelation tells us exactly when it happened. Revelation 12, 1 and 2, and a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out to the birth, and the Agony of giving birth. All right, now, notice what John says. A great sign. What's he talking about? It's important to recognize the relationship of all this to the astronomical symbolism in this text. The word John uses here for sign is the Greek word semeon, which means a sign or distinguishing mark whereby something is known. So it's a sign, it's a token, it's an indication the term was used in the ancient world to describe the constellations of the zodiac. I think we're somewhat familiar with that, right? John's model for this vision of the church is the constellation Virgo, which has does have a crown of 12 stars. All right, Virgo. That's the second largest constellation. It's one of the earliest to be distinguished and it lies on the zodiac east of Leo. Has these 12 stars. All of the 12 stars are visible ones that could have been seen by the observers. And it seems li- likely that the 12 stars also represent the 12 signs of the zodiac from ancient times regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we can go all the way back to Genesis and connect that. Remember, Joseph's famous dream with his father and the mother and the 12 stars, the sun, moon, and the stars bowed down and worshipped him. The constellations. Now, in his book, the birth of Christ recalculated. Ernest Martin says this. Now, here's the neat thing. You can get software today in, for the sky, for the zodiac, and you can trace back. You can go back to the different years, and you can see how each one, I mean, it's just amazing what they have out now. But Ernest Martin says this. He says, in the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered the head position of the woman about August 13th and exited from her feet about October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman. This surely indicates that the position of the sun in the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman, between the neck and the knees. The only time in the year that the sun could be in that position to clothe the celestial woman to be mid-bodies is when it was located about 150 and 170 degrees along the ecliptic. This clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for a 20-day period each year. So we just narrowed the birth of Christ down to a 20-day span there, right? Getting a lot narrower. The 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born in 3 B.C. The sun would have entered this celestial region about August 27th and exited from it about September 15th. If John in the book of Revelation is associating the birth of Christ with the period when the son is mid-bodied to the woman, then Christ would have had to be born within that 20-day period. Now, from the point of view of the Magi, who were astronomers, this would have been the only logical sign under which the Jewish Messiah might be born, especially if he were to be born of a virgin. Even today, astrologers recognize that the sign of Virgo is one which has reference to a messianic world ruler to be born of a virgin. Now he says the key to narrowing down the date is the moon. John said it was located under her feet. Since the feet of Virgo, the virgin, represents the last seven degrees of the constellation in the time of Christ, this would have been between about 180, 187 degrees along the ecliptic, the moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven degree arc. But the moon has to always be also be in that exact location when the sun is mid-bodied to Virgo. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours as observed from Palestine on September 11th. This is the only day in the whole year that it could have taken place. So, based on the scripture based on astronomy, we know that Christ was born on September 11th. This was also the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Now, I'm not an astronomer. I don't even play one on TV. But if Martin is right, then it seems pretty clear that Christ was born on September 11th in the year 3 BC. So where did December 25th come from then? How did we come up with that date? Well, I think it's it's easy to understand, although there's still a lot of disagreement about this. I think it came from the pagan holiday Saturnalia. All right? It's a winter solstice festival that happens around this time. This was a Roman observance of the birth, the birthday of the Invincible Sun on December 25th. The celebration consisted of feasts, parades, gift-giving, lighted candles, green trees, Sounds like something we do, huh? Many of our Christmas customs have their origins in Saturnalia. Okay? It's a pagan feast. And we're doing the same thing on the same day. Now, here's the key. This pagan holiday was Christianized in 336 A.D. by the Emperor Constantine. Constantine told God, if I win this battle, I'll become a Christian. I'll make everybody a Christian. And that was a great damaging thing because he took all the pagan holidays, all the pagan temples, everything's Christian now. And it just the water got very, very muddy. But that was a day they were celebrating. So now he says, okay, from now on this will be Christ's celebration, not the invincible sun, you know, that we're talking about, but this will be Christ. He declared Christ's birthday an official Roman holiday. Chrysostom, who was the early church father. Rebuke Christians for adopting this pagan holiday. But it stuck. (laughs) Okay? They didn't care. Alright, now that we know the date of Christ's birth, let me say that the apostles in the early church never celebrated Christ's birth at any time. I mean, you're reading through the gospel, you ever see the apostles come, hey, Yeshua, it's your birthday today. Let's, you know, we got a cake, we got... You don't see that, right? There's no command in the scripture to celebrate Christ's birthday. As a matter of fact, celebrating birthdays is really a pagan, not a Christian custom. So, and I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate birthdays, okay? Just saying it's not a biblical custom. All right, let's move on to fallacy number three about Christmas. Christ was born in a stable because the Holiday Inn had too many people, right? This is, uh... (laughs) all right, let's read Luke 2, 6, and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I often have talked to you about the importance of understanding the Hebrew culture in order to properly understand Scripture. Their culture is so different than ours that we have to learn some of these cultural traditions or we're just not going to get it. We're not going to have an idea what's going on. And if you study the culture in light of the birth of Christ, you're going to see quite a different picture from what the tradition paints. If we study the biblical text, the archaeological evidence, and the first century cultural context, the details surrounding Yeshua's birth are going to be quite different than we've traditionally been taught. Most modern versions of the story of Yeshua's birth, uh, they go something like, just Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem late at night on December 25th. I mean, they just got into town, right? Mary's in labor. She's about to give birth. They go to the local inn. It's got the no vacancy sign out. They bang on the door anyway. They say, sorry, there's no room here. You can't come in. So the tired couple, what do we do? Where do we go? They end up in a stable. They're desperate, so they go to the stable with all the animals. They deliver the child, and they put him in the manger. Then some shepherds and three kings show up, okay, and they worship him. I don't know where we got three kings from. Okay, well, there's three gifts, right? So that's, they figure it had to be three kings that way. But the Bible doesn't talk about three kings. Well, let's examine the text and see if we can see anything that's different. First of all, the Greek word translated in here is kataluma. Okay, important to understand. There's no place for them in the kataluma. It means a place of rest, usually translated guest room. In fact, the same writer, Luke, uses this very word later, and he translates it, guest room, okay, in Luke twenty-two eleven, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So, why does Luke, same Greek word, why does he translate it in, in one place, and guest room in another. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's by Mark. And Mark translates it guest room also. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So in Mark it's translated guest room. So why do the translators translate it in in the story of Christ's birth? You think maybe tradition has something to do with it? Well, we know the story, you know, he didn't get kicked out of a guest room, he couldn't go in the inn, so you know, they What's interesting here is that when Luke does speak of an inn, he uses a completely different word. And we know he speaks of an inn in the parable of the good Samaritan, right? Luke 10:34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and they took care of him. So Yeshua mentions that the injured man in the story was taken to an inn. And here Luke uses the Greek word "pandochion." The first part of this word pan means all. The second part is a verb that means to receive. So pandoheon is a place that receives all. What's that? That's a commercial inn. It's what we think of as today of a, an inn, a motel. The common Greek... Term for inn was so widely known across the Middle East that over the centuries it was absorbed as a Greek loan word into Aramean, Coptic, Arabic, Turkish, with the same meaning: a commercial inn. So when Luke wants to talk about an inn, he knows what word to use. But when he doesn't use that word, okay, the translators say, "Well, he doesn't mean that." Okay, we're going to translate it a different way. If Luke expected his readers to think that Joseph was turned away from an inn, He would have used this word pandohion, which is clearly meant a commercial inn, but Luke uses kataluma because he's not talking about an inn. Young's literal translation, which again, if you want to get a good translation of something, have a Young's close by, compare it. He says, there's no guest chamber, not room for them, a place for them in the guest chamber. Now, when the When the Scripture translates no room for him in the inn, people take that to mean there's a number of rooms, but they're all occupied. There's no vacancy sign is up. So Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem, and they just have a place to go. But the Greek word here for place, a lot of translations translate this room, there was no room for them in the inn. And if there's no room, you think, okay, there's a bunch of rooms in the inn. There wasn't any more rooms left. But place is probably a better translation here. It's the Greek word tupas. And when he says there's no place, it means like, I would say, there's no place on my desk for my computer. There's too much stuff on it. There's there's no space for them. And that's what he's saying. There's no space for them in the guest room. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's too small. Maybe somebody's already there. But the linguistic evidence shows that Luke used the term kataluma to mean not an inn, but a guest room. And the definite article is used, the guest room. The guest room of a particular house. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, after pointing out that the word kataluma is used elsewhere in the Gospels for the guest chamber of a private home, says this. Was the inn at Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary sought a night's lodging an upper guest room in a private home or some kind of public place for travelers? The question cannot be answered with certainty. Yes, it can. Okay. It is thought by some that it may have been a guest chamber provided by the community. We know that visitors to the annual feast in Jerusalem were entertained in the guest rooms of private homes. So I think that by understanding the culture, the question can be answered with certainty. See, another factor that powerfully argues against the term meaning an inn is that these places were not appropriate for giving birth in this day. The inns were basically brothels. They were anything like our motel or hotels today, so generally speaking, there's just a bad reputation. The poor conditions of public inns, together with the Semitic spirit of hospitality, led the Jews and the early Christians to recommend keeping a guest room for the benefit of strangers. Besides this, for commercial reasons, inns were usually found along major roads, kind of like today. Yet Bethlehem was a small town in the upper mountains of Judea, and no major Roman road is known to have passed through it. And since it seems to have been an insignificant village at the time, it's doubtful they had an inn there. Now this gives us a reason to realize that what Luke really wrote was that there was no room for them in the guest chamber. Now, certainly, due to the Roman census being taken at the time and the large number of people traveling to their birthplaces, available space in the guest room would be scarce. So the question then becomes does that mean that Joseph and Mary aimed to stay in somebody's home, but since the guest room was full, they're turned out to go to the stable? When Mary's in labor, that seems even worse than an inn kicking them out, right? I mean, you can understand a commercial inn saying, sorry, we don't have your room, but they're at someone's home, and they're saying, oh, sorry, kind of full right now. We just can't, we can't have you here. Keep this in mind. We've gone over this several times. We, we looked at this in, in their series on Second and 3 John. In Christ's day, hospitality to visitors among Jews was essential. Based on a biblical example and law, hospitality was a huge deal in that culture. Remember I told you the Jews had a list of six things that commend a man in the life to come, and number one on that list was hospitality. Now, we don't think of hospitality in, that, you know, in the top ten, but Jews, it was number one. So denial of hospitality throughout the Scripture is just an outrage. Hospitality towards visitors is still important throughout the Middle East today. So since Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home, he probably had relatives there. And being a descendant of King David, whose hometown this was, he would have been highly respected upon his arrival. I mean, we look at these like, oh, these poor people, they have to go out in the shed with a bunch of animals. Well, we again, it's, you don't understand the culture at all. You, you might think of a descendant of George Washington coming to his hometown of Alexandria, Virginia, after a long lapse of time. The townspeople would have shown him respect. Kenneth Bailey, who's a Middle Eastern A New Testament scholar says this, My 30-year experience with villagers in the Middle East is that the intensity of honor shown to the passing guest is still very much in force, especially when it's a returning son of the village who is seeking shelter. We have observed cases where a complete village has turned out a great celebration to greet a young man who has suddenly arrived unannounced in the village, which his grandfather had left many years before. Bailey goes on to say it should also be pointed out that childbirth was a major event at that time. In a small village like Bethlehem, many neighborhood women would have come in to help the birth. In the case of a birth, the men would sit apart uh, with the neighbors, but the room would be full of women assisting the midwife. A private home would have bedding, facilities for heating water, and all that is required for any peasant birth. What all this means is there would have been unthinkable, unimaginable insult to just turn them away and say, no, go find a stable somewhere or something when you have a lady that's you know, in labor to not take care of them, to send them to a stable. That can't be what's going on in this text. Nor can it be that they were sent out in the night from a private home. So what actually happened? Well, regrett- regrettably, the birth of Christ is later overlaid with so much tradition and legend about Christmas that it's really hard to let the biblical text even speak for itself. The common assumption is that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem and being hastened by the labor pains, they rushed to an inn only to find no vacancies, so they end up in a stable. However, a careful reading of the text shows they'd already been in Bethlehem for some time before she came into labor. In Luke 2.4, we're told that Mary and Joseph went up to Bethlehem The verse assumes they arrived. Then in verse 6, we are told, and while they were there, they've they've already been there, they've been there for several days, the time came to give birth. She gave birth to a firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and lied him in a manger, because there's no room for them in the guest chamber. So how do we end up with a stable? Well, it says he was laid in a manger, because we don't know anything about mangers. We just figure it was in a stable, right? Wrong. Mangers were often found within first-century homes. Every home had a manger. You're like, what the heck they got mangers in their home for? Where are they going to put the nativity scene if they don't have one, right? <laughs> Again, culture. A typical Judean house of that day consisted of an area near the front door. It was, you'd come in the door, and it'd be all dirt. Okay, it was just a dirt floor. The animals stayed there. Then they had a raised platform, and then that part of the house was where you stayed. All right, they wanted the animals in the house for protection, also for heat. They kept those animals safe. They needed them. It brought heat on cool nights. So the family lived and slept on the raised area, and a lot of the homes had a guest room, either upstairs on the second floor or adjoining because hospitality was so important to them. So they had this guest room. Typically, the lower area near the door had a manger for food or water. Oftentimes, mangers are for water, not just for food. And it was the the more wealthy people who had stables for their animals that kept them different from their house. So a more realistic view of what occurred with Christ's birth, according to the customs of the time, is that the manger was in a house. It wasn't in a stable. So this cultural information gives us new understanding of the story of Yeshua's birth. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. They find shelter with a family, who were glad to take them in. Their separate guest room is either too full, there's already people there, or it's too small to accommodate them. So the birth takes place there on the raised terrace of the family home, and the baby is taken and laid in a manger. Now, the Palestinian reader of Luke's account would have instinctively thought, manger, huh, they must be in the main family room. And then they probably would have thought, why not the guest chamber? So Luke says, because there was no place for them in the guest chamber. Oh, he go. okay, I get it. There, There was no room, so they brought him in the main room of the house, and that's where it was. That makes sense anyway, okay? So let me ask you, why mix the birth of Yeshua with all the pagan myths? Why mix it up? And <laughs> now that you know where Christ was born, go home and throw out your nativity scene. It's all wrong. Okay, get rid of those kings that are there. They didn't come for a couple years. Okay, they're not there at the, in the stable that's not in the stable. Okay, just a whole, you get a whole different picture on the birth of Christ when you look at it from the biblical text. All right. And like I said, why, why are we so intent on taking the birth of Christ, which is a very important thing, and belittle it by putting all these crazy traditions? It makes it seem like it's just another one of the fables that's associated with Christmas. The birth of Yeshua, I think, is far too important to confuse with Christmas. Notice what the Bible says about Christ's birth. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill that which the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, people, if you stop and think about this, this has to be the greatest miracle, the most fantastic truth recorded in the pages of Scripture. God became a man. The Almighty appears on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. And he did cry, okay? Don't believe the song. All right? The little Lord Jesus, no crying. He may. was a baby. Babies cry. That's not a sin to cry. He cried, okay? He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed. He needed to be taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, it's staggering. I mean, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. God became a man. John put it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's interesting that John begins his gospel account with the same words of Genesis. In the beginning... He doesn't begin the gospel with the baby Yeshua. In essence, he says, if you're going to understand Yeshua, you've got to go back a lot further past that manger. For he was in the beginning with God. And not just with God, it says he was God. All you have to do to figure that out is to read the next couple of verses. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. He's referring to Christ. Everything was made through Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made In Him was life, and He was the light of men. Yeshua is God, the creator of all things, the giver of all life. And in verse 14, John said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh and dwelt among men. The Word became, here is the Greek word, it signifies entrance into a new condition. And you just got to look at the contrast between verse 1 and verse 14. Verse 1 says, The Word was God, Verse 14 says, the Word became flesh, became human. Verse 1 says, the Word was with God. Verse 14 says, the Word dwelt among us. God walked with us. The word flesh in verse 14 is the Greek word sarx. It refers to all which is essential to human nature. What John is saying is that God became one of us in every respect except for sin. Yeshua had the mind, will, emotions of a man, not just a body. Yeshua is the God-man. Now, people ask, well, is it a big deal that we believe that Yeshua is God? Yes. John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, there's no he in the text. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. What he is saying is that people have to believe. This is what you need to believe so you don't die in your sins. The conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. If you do not believe that I am. Yeshua is claiming here to be the I am. He's asserting equality with Yahweh himself who was revealed as the I am that I am. The self-existent eternal God. He said unless you believe that I am. Unless you will believe that I am God. You will die in your sins. God the Son became a man. That's the meaning of the incarnation. What's its purpose? Why did God become a man? The answer is found in verse 21 of Matthew. He will save His people from their sins. He was born to die. The purpose of the incarnation was specifically that Yeshua the Christ might die for our sins. The birth of our Lord Yeshua is so much more important than to confuse it with the myths and the traditions of Christmas. Let me close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great English preacher. I love this. My famous quote by him. Look, Christmas is here. We might as well learn to live with it and take the opportunity to exalt Christ. I think it's good advice. You know, we'll never change the traditions of Christmas. And the world will always in some strange way associate it with the birth of Christ and think it's about Christ and about His birth. We might as well learn to live with it and take the opportunities to exalt Christ by sharing with all who will listen the reason Christ was born. He was born to die for the sins of man. And His birth should remind us that we're all sinners and in need of a Savior. The little baby in the manger grew up. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death for sinners. So I'd ask you today, believers, or people, have you put your trust in Him? Will you trust His work on the cross to pay for your sin debt? That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about doing anything. It's about trusting in what God has done for you. By faith in Yeshua, you can receive the greatest gift of all time, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Father, I know we'll never eradicate the traditions of Christmas. We'll never be able to remove the truth of Christianity from it. But as Spurgeon says, I guess we just learn to live with it and take opportunities to share the gospel of Christ. We thank you for your truth, Lord. It's an amazing story, Lord. Not about no room in a hotel, so you have to go in a stable. There was a family there, a relative who took in Joseph and Mary, who were there around the birth of the Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the Word of God. Give us a hunger to dig below the surface, Lord, to try to learn, to try to grow, to be Bereans, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your great love for us. Amen. Questions, comments? Nope, not you, Jeff. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I just wondered, past you spoke of this December 25th being the year that the guy showed the gifts. Would that have had any bearing rather than just that in area? Would it have been a significance for December 25th in the early days? Yeah, I said I'd never even heard of that till not many years ago. Jeff's question is December 25th has some significance, all right? Some astronomers say that is the day that the wise men showed up to bring the gifts to Christ. Now, he's not in the manger anymore. He's not in that home. He's, this is two years later. But they say December 25th was the time that he showed up. That could have some significance if these people showed up to bring gifts to, to Christ on that day. So what we do is we say, we'll give gifts to everybody else. Well, but he didn't have anything to do with <laughs> his parents. He gave yeah. gifts parents. No, they put that, they ball ball put that the aside for him. His oh, yeah. Yeah. college party. <laughs> <Yeah, that's right. laughs> yeah. So, yes, and, and I thought about that. We've talked about that in the past, that December 25th does have some significance. But most people who try to tie that in really try to make it the birth of Christ. Okay? Like I said, it, biblically, it was like two years later, the wise men showed up to honor the king.